Hi, I'm Rick Steves. 500 years ago, Martin Luther kicked off the Reformation. The new pope, Leo X, called Luther a heretic and sent him a papal bull threatening excommunication. This formal document gave Luther 60 days to recant or be kicked out of the church. Luther, not cowed by the pope's bull, responded with a flurry of new pamphlets further challenging church practices. Things escalated. In a legendary tit-for-tat, the pope ordered the burning of Luther's books, and Luther burned the papal bull. The more the church opposed Luther, the bolder Luther became. The two most powerful leaders in Europe back then were the pope, based in Rome, and the Holy Roman Emperor, whose empire spanned much of Europe. The pope was furious, and the emperor, Charles V, being a devout Catholic, wanted to support his pope. He agreed to give Luther a hearing and summoned him to the Imperial Diet, that's like a congressional hearing, in the city of Worms on the Rhine River. The Holy Roman Emperor himself traveled to Worms to arbitrate. Luther's challenge to Rome's authority was cheered by Germans. Traveling to Worms, Luther was greeted with a hero's welcome at every stop. Pamphlets showed him with a halo accompanied by a dove, symbol of the Holy Spirit. It said that in one town, 60 horsemen escorted Luther to a church so packed with people eager to hear him preach that the balcony groaned and nearly collapsed. Imagine the showdown at Forms. Papal representatives, princes, imperial troops, all power dressing. The emperor himself sitting high on his throne. The crowds craning to see the action. In the center of the room, Martin Luther stood alone beside a table stacked with his rabble-rousing books and pamphlets. The prosecutor insisted Luther was a heretic. Summing up his case, he asked, who are you to go against 1,500 years of church doctrine? He demanded that Luther renounce his writings. Luther would not budge. Perhaps as never before in European history, one ordinary person stood up to authority for what he believed. He said, unless you can convince me by scripture or by clear reasoning, I am bound by my beliefs. I cannot and I will not recant. May God help me. Amen. Well, good morning, Hope. Uh, welcome to all of you who are here in this room. It's good to see you and all of you who are tuning in via video at one of our campuses or local sites or online, wherever you might be. Um, and a special hello to our new local site in Newton, Iowa. Uh, we are so excited. This is day one for you. So um, praise God for you. Everyone say hello, Newton. One, two, three. Hello. Wherever you are. And good to see uh, so many of you here packing the house today. Turns out the Ten Commandments are, are, people are hungry for them, and it's not a surprise. And next week I'm preaching about sex, so we'll put in extra rows uh, up here and, and in the middle and the back. So spread the word if you want to know what God has to say about it. And he invented it, so he's got some good things. But happy Reformation Sunday. I've got my Martin Luther bobblehead. I see all of you are wearing red to ce celebrate the day, and you woke up festive and happy, and uh, yes, sir, very good. And a few of you, um, but maybe that was coincidental, and that's okay. But it is Reformation Sunday. That was Rick Steves narrating. Uh, he's a travel guide for PBS and others, and I don't know about you. Anybody else a Rick Steves fan? Like when you travel, you at least check him out. He's great. Did you know? He's a Lutheran. Yeah. He's dating one of our bishops in Seattle. That's crazy. It's true. You can look it up. But Rick Steves is not <laughs> just a guy then who's talking about this kind of from arm's length distance. 
He's a lifelong Lutheran and it matters to him. But here's what I want to say to you today. One of many things is you don't have to be a Lutheran to appreciate Martin Luther. Martin Luther is considered uh, by many experts who look back over the last thousand years to be the most influential human being of the millennium, of the last millennium. If he isn't number one, he's on everybody's top five list. He didn't just change the church. We're not just talking about spiritual things here. He didn't just pave a pathway for the future of Lutherans like us. He, he paved a pathway for the future of the whole Christian church. But beyond the church, he influenced music, the arts, academics, universities, and people who take stands for freedom for all sorts of just reasons. When Martin Luther King Sr. traveled to Germany, he was a Baptist preacher from the United States, he traveled to Germany to study this man even more, Martin Luther. And while he was there, he was so inspired by him. The part of the story I didn't say is his name wasn't Martin Luther King Sr. when he traveled to Germany. He changed his name to Martin Luther King Sr. after he was inspired by the teachings of Martin Luther that he was studying in Germany before he returned to the United States. And when he got back to the United States, he looked at his young son... Michael King Jr. and changed his name to Martin Luther King Jr. And the similarities are fascinating to me. Both Martin Luther and Martin Luther King Jr., who's named after Martin Luther, this bobblehead guy, is the one who brought freedom through the civil rights movement of the 1960s and absolutely pushed forward a godly cause. He was a Baptist preacher because of his faith. He stepped forward and nonviolently with peaceful protest pushed forward an agenda that needed to be pushed forward in this country that brought more freedom. It certainly didn't fully accomplish the dream. We haven't realized it yet, but he made huge steps of progress, which we should continue because we belong to the same God he does. Martin Luther, the priest started a reformation with, which set Christians free. But I think I need to do this right off the start. So here's Luther. Here's a depiction of Jesus. And we have some others. Napoleon Dynamite is here. Pastor Jeremy's bobblehead Minnesota Gopher is here. Uh, our operations minister, Chris Canary, is a big Minnesota Wild Hockey fan. So we got a bobblehead. Uh, I can't remember where I got this. This is a Bob Ross little bobblehead. The, the painter, if you need to mellow out. Mark Brandt, our online minister, has a Broncos bobblehead. I stole all these without apology from your offices and just brought them here to the altar today because Lord knows the Bronco guy needs Jesus right about now. <laughs> and so we put them all here. But I want to be really clear on this because some of you didn't grow up Lutheran. Most of you did not grow up Lutheran at Lutheran Church of Hope. Sometimes you kind of like, well, I'm kind of cool with the whole Church of Hope part, but I'm not as cool with the Lutheran. I don't even know what a Lutheran really is. Do we worship Luther? Is that why we take his name as our first name as the Lutheran Church of Hope? No, we do not. We do not put Luther here on the same level as Jesus. Luther goes, he'd roll over in his grave if we did that. He'd be so upset with us because his whole entire teaching was priesthood, of, a, a big tenant of his teaching that became a foundational truth for the whole Protestant Reformation was the priest, oh, Napoleon just about bit it. <laughs> There's only one God and we're all on a level plane before this God. 
We do not worship Luther. We just see him as somebody who gave a faithful witness to who Jesus Christ is and is one of the most influential human beings of the last thousand years who changed our whole world. Not perfectly. He's also a fallen, sinful human being, and the older he got, perhaps, probably flirted with senility on a certain level, the more he said some really embarrassing and awkward things. Some things that really need to be forgiven by people of grace, but are not justifiable. But he said some incredibly faithful things, some things that turned the church back right side up and put it on a new pathway. Quick history of Luther, born in 1483, became a monk in 1505 when he made a deal with God in the middle of a thunderstorm. He was walking outside. He says, God, if you, if you spare my life, I'll become a priest instead of a lawyer like my dad, dad wants me to. And he kept his promise. He became a priest. He became a monk. And he was brilliant. He dove into the scriptures. He became a doctor of theology, and he became a very popular professor at universities and gave lectures and, and wrote volumes and volumes and volumes. I'm talking like shelves high of stuff that, that we get to read and study when we're in Lutheran seminary. In 1517, because he dove so deeply into the scriptures, he saw a deep disconnect between the church he loved, and I can't emphasize that enough, Luther did not want to leave his church, he wanted to reform his church. That's where the name reform or reformation comes from. And he started a protest, that's where Protestantism started from, Protestantism. So he started the Protestant Reformation by writing things about this disconnect, about here's what our church teaches and practices, and here's what scripture says, and a lot of times they are at odds with one another. We're not talking about the 21st century state of the church, we're talking about the way it was back then. There are still issues in the church today to be sure, but back then they were much more pronounced. On top of that, we can read this story, we tend to universalize our own specific history and experiences, and that's always dangerous to do if you want accuracy and truth. So if we look back on it, we say, oh, Luther stood up against the Pope. And that took some level of courage. You have no idea. If you heard Rick Steves' words in that video, the Pope was one of the two most powerful men on the face of the earth in Luther's day. And the other one was a big fan of the Pope, the Holy Roman Emperor. And so the Pope really, Pope Leo, had all the power, and he was corrupt. He wanted to build St. Peter's Cathedral, you know, at the Vatican. Maybe you've visited it before. It's glorious, isn't it? It is. I've been there. I think it's absolutely incredible. But it was built by using, excuse me, spiritual malpractice. The Pope ordered his priests and bishops and cardinals to go out into the villages of ordinary people and to tell them they were going to burn in hell unless they bought these letters of an indulgence. Uh, uh, indulgences and these indulgence letters were decrees that were sealed by the Pope himself that said all of your sins are forgiven and the reason the Pope could get away with that is because nobody really knew what the Bible said outside of whatever the church told them the Bible said because the Bible was only translated into Latin back then and only the one percent highly educated priests bishops cardinals Pope and people like that maybe lawyers maybe doctors they're the only ones who could read Latin 99% of the population didn't read Latin, if they even read German. They certainly didn't understand it if it was read to them and spoken to them. So they would go to church, and the entire service would be in Latin. And they wouldn't even necessarily know what they were saying or doing. The priest would stand up and say, this is what the Bible says, and who are you to argue? You can't read it. Now that's a power move. 
not a faithful one, a deeply corrupt one. But if you don't know what the Bible says, how can you hold us as teachers accountable? Next year here at Hope, I'm so excited about this. I think this is exactly what our, our world that's wandering in this wilderness, coming out of COVID needs, trying to find our way, trying to remember who we are and whose we are. We're going to read the whole Bible, cover to cover as a church family. Our goal is a year plus from now, you won't just be biblically literate, you'll be biblically fluent. Your faith will be on fire because we trust the deep, rich soil of God's word. We're going to read it Genesis to Revelation. If that's too much for you, we'll have a New Testament track. I mean, come on, slackers. But if that's what you want to do, you can do that. But we'll have daily readings, sermons each week. We'll be focused on something you read over that last week. We'll have Bible studies and, and hope groups and all sorts of, for all ages and ministries. We want to be a biblically fluent church. Who's excited about that? I mean, praise that's going to be awesome. I am. Yay. Yay for, you're very, that's a very Lutheran response. We want God's word. Here's what Luther built the whole Reformation about. He said, here's the problem with the disconnect. Nobody knows what the Bible says. And so it's God's word alone. That's our only source and norm of the highest level of authority because it points us to grace alone. We're saved by grace alone, Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, but nobody knew that because they couldn't read the Bible. This is not your own doing, the Bible goes on to say, lest any of us should boast, but it is a gift from God. It's not about what you do, it's about what Christ has done, but nobody knew that. Except maybe the people in Luther's classes at the university. And so Luther started writing, and, and, and the printing press was coming out at the same time, and so his writings became very popular. They was like, you know, new editions of the hottest comic book where we're going out and they were illustrated by a friend of his who was the greatest illustrator in all of what we now call Germany. And people just, just gobbled this stuff up and it was starting this movement. And the Pope, the most powerful human being on the face of the earth at the time, took notice. Luther nailed 95 theses to the door of the Wittenberg Church 505 years ago this weekend. That's why it's Reformation weekend. And that's where things really started picking up. These 95 theses were a summary. Isn't that just like a preacher? <laughs> here's a summary, a long sermon of everything I want to tell you about this. But here's my 95 theses. Well, you know, sermonettes make Christianettes. We don't want that. So here's the, here's the 95 theses. He nails them to the door of the Wittenberg Church. And it starts this revolution. People were like, because it was, it was talked about in languages people knew. And it was all the buzz. And people were saying to their neighbors, did you know the Bible said that? We're saved by God's grace alone. God's grace is amazing. Can you imagine if you didn't know God's grace was amazing and suddenly you realized it is? What a game changer that would be for you. Oh, we take it for granted. We say, I'll go to church as long as I get home in time for the football game. Or I'll go as long as it doesn't get in the way of my social plans for the weekend. Or whatever else we're doing. Because it's not the most important thing in my life. It should be. Hanging out in God's house. Worshiping the God who made us. Nothing should rise to this level. Which is why God gives us the command. Remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy. Luther writes about all these things. And he says... It is absolutely unjustifiable spiritual malpractice that the church that I love is selling indulgences. They're basically giving everybody two choices. You're either going to burn in hell or you can buy one of these indulgences and in today's dollars, maybe, you know, after you hear their, your confession, your sins, that'll be $25,000. So fork over the $25,000 
not as an offering, as a fee to get into heaven so you can buy your way into heaven, fork over the cash, or burn in hell. And who are you to argue with us because you don't even know what the Bible says? What a play. Luther was having none of it. So he courageously stood against it. And it started this firestorm, and the Pope took notice, and so did the, 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 the ruler of the Roman Empire. And they called him in to what's like a congressional hearing, and they put him on trial. And to make matters even worse, Luther was not unaware of the history that people who came before him tried to do the same thing he was doing now, and they were burned at the stake like Johann Hus. So Luther know, knows coming into this trial, if I say the wrong thing, if I don't say, oops, sorry, I didn't mean to write that. If I don't take it all back, I'm going to get the next stake and the next fire. I'm going to get burned. I'm going to be executed by the two most powerful men on the face of the earth. Now do you get a better sense for what he was up against? How intimidating this moment was in all of human history? This defining moment for the church, for Christianity, for the arts, for academics, for freedom, for people taking righteous stands, for just issues. Credit Luther for getting that ball rolling and making it an option, something that we all have the freedom to do, the opportunity to do, without being worried probably in almost every case of being burned at a stake. So... He was put on trial and he was asked, this is the question, Luther, what you're writing stands against the church. Do you recant? Do you take it back? Because if you don't, you know what we're going to do to you. Luther said, unless you can prove to me, this is his response, using the holy scriptures, not your traditions, not your motives, not your building programs, Unless you can show me in scripture where I have erred, I will not recant. My conscience won't let me. I'm bound to my conscience. I cannot recant. Here I stand. I can do no other. So help me God. <laughs> I get emotional thinking about it. The debt we owe to him for risking his life well, some of his friends had a plan for that. They kidnapped Luther. His friends did. With friends like that, right? Who needs enemies? They kidnapped Luther, and they took him to a castle called Wartburg. So if any of you are a Wartburg alum or a Luther alum, and you know about the big, hopefully usually friendly rivalry between Luther College and Wartburg College, two Lutheran-affiliated colleges, I do find it fascinating, fascinating that in order to survive, Luther had to hide out at Wartburg. I'm just saying... I like them both. So Luther took his stand, and then while he was hiding out in the Wartburg Castle, he translated the Bible into German, and I hope you know by now why. He wanted the 99% to know what God says about them, about how much God's, God loves them, how much God loves you, about how amazing God's grace is for everybody. And it started this movement that we're a part of. That's what it means to be a Lutheran. We're a part of this movement still to this day that says, if it doesn't say it in the Bible, no matter how important it is to, to others, it's not the most important thing to us. 
This will be our source and norm for all matters of faith and daily life. There will be no other. It's not this plus a whole bunch of other things plus what, somebody, what Uncle Frank says or Aunt Betty says. What is your faith built on? Is it built on the timeless truth, the deep, rich soil of God's word? Or is it built on what it, and I'm sorry if your name's Betty or Frank. That's my bad. I don't mean you. I mean people who have your name. Or do you just base what you believe about God based on whatever you want God to be, which is original sin? Well, my God would never do this, so therefore that's not who God is. What if you had a faith that was grounded in truth, revealed in words that have been tested over centuries, inspired by the Holy Spirit of God, that, that, have, that have created a, a world that is actually far better than it would be without it, pushing us forward in every good way, and against every bad thing. He got married in 1525, Martin Luther did, which I just throw on the timeline because that's personally just very important to me. And I hope most days it's also important to my wife, Sally. It means priests could get married and pastors could get married. And before that, that wasn't the tradition. And I'm just really grateful that it is. And how about you? You thinking that's okay today? That's good. I'm, I'm really glad. I'm working on that. 1529, Luther wrote the Catechism, the large version, which is more in-depth, and the small version, which is the one we teach in Confirmation, our Power Life Confirmation ministry here, but that's not why it was written. Did you know that? Small Catechism was written for parents to teach the faith to their kids at home. It gives us a quick survey through the foundations of Christianity. Here's the Ten Commandments. Parents, teach your kids to memorize them. Here's what they mean. Here's the Apostles' Creed. Here's the Lord's Prayer. Those are the foundations that give us a biblical summary of our faith. And so Luther lifts them up in this little tiny booklet. It's like almost a brochure, the small catechism. He died in 1546, but not before he wrote volumes of stuff that still gets used famously today, including his, his, uh, his analysis of the fifth commandment, our commandment for today. You shall not murder. Every, everyone turn to the person next to you wherever you are and say, you can't murder me. God says so. <laughs> that was fun to watch because some of the husbands were smiling way too much. <laughs> you just can't do it. God, God says you can't. You can't end my life today. And you shouldn't. It's going to really mess you up. It's going to put you on a pathway that you won't like. You shall not murder. Luther, though, goes on to say, what does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not hurt or harm our neighbor in his body, but help and support him in every physical need. Don't hurt or harm. Everybody say that. Don't hurt or harm. Help and support. Everybody say that. That's it. That's the summary of the commandment. You say, well, wait a minute. I thought it says thou shalt not kill. Where's the part about helping and supporting and hurting or harming? Doesn't that just mean you don't murder anybody and you should be okay on this one? I mean, if you went to the mall after this service or a grocery store, wherever you might be, and you walked up to any random American and you said, you know the Ten Commandments? The answer might be something like, eh, sort of. Can you name any of them? I'm guessing this one would be number one. Well, there's that one about killing, murder, and then that opens up a whole debate too, like Batman and Robin have here on the next screen. The Bible says, thou shalt not kill, and Batman slaps him and says, no, it's murder, thou shalt not murder. And you're right, sort of. The King James says, thou shalt not kill. Almost every other English translation says, thou shalt not murder. 
but it doesn't matter what the English translation is. It matters what the original Hebrew word was. And the original Hebrew word is probably translated better as murder than kill. Although if you go to the second definition of that same original Hebrew word, it also includes kill. So, so much for that. It's just pushed a little too hard, typically by people who want to make this commandment very narrow and very comfortable for them and say things like, as long as I don't violently murder an innocent human being, I think I'm okay on this commandment. Luther would say you're not. So would Willie Nelson. This is the first time I've ever quoted Willie Nelson in a sermon in 30-some years as a pastor. <laughs> and it probably will be the last. But he's a Christian. And he believes and he said this. I don't remember Moses writing thou shalt not kill. Unless you think you have a good reason. He's right about that, but let's go to a guy with another beard who didn't love as many women before, and Moses has this view, which has got more authority for us because it's from the pages of Scripture. After the Ten Commandments are given through Moses to God's people, Moses says, today I've given you the choice between life and death, between blessings and curses. Isn't that an interesting way to put it? Follow the commands, you'll be more blessed. Don't follow the commands, it's going to hurt you. In ways you might not even see. Like trying to too narrowly interpret them so you feel more comfortable about them. Now I call on heaven and earth to witness the choice you make. Oh, that you would choose life. Everyone say, choose life. It's in the Bible. We believe it. So that you and your descendants might live. People say, oh, wait a minute. What about this? What about that? What about war? What about self-defense? What, what about all these other categories? Great Christian theologians from Augustine all the way forward have, have studied and studied scripture for this, dove deep into the word to try to figure out, well, when is war just and when is it unjust? And there's these tenets on that. I don't have time to get through all those, but there are just wars. There are also a lot of unjust wars. There is self-defense. There's also a lot of cases where we call it self-defense and it isn't. Here's the biblical ethic. Life matters to God. I mean, that's a pretty simple and easy way to remember it. Your life matters to God. So does every other life that God has created. From the womb to the tomb and everywhere in between. And the Bible's really clear on that. And that's not Pastor Mike's opinion. That's God's word. And so if it challenges the rhetoric of our world, let it be. And, and work through that. But that is God's word on these things. Choose life. Oh, that you would choose life that you and your descendants might live. But that's not... Willie Nelson, it's Moses, but even better than Moses, because if I had a Moses bobblehead, he'd be right next to Luther on the same level as the rest of us as a fallen sinful human being, bowing down before God in the person of Jesus Christ. So let's turn to Jesus. In his Sermon on the Mount, he famously uses this rhetorical move. He starts right here with this fifth commandment, you shall not kill. And he says, you have heard it said, in our tradition, our law, the laws of Moses, you have heard it said, you shall not murder. But I say to you, if you are even angry with someone, you're subject to the same judgment as those who take the life violently of an innocent human being. Which is really uncomfortable to read. Especially since it isn't Willie Nelson, who we could argue with. Or Moses, who is, is fallible, who, who is not divine. This is Jesus. You have heard 
it said. You know the law. And Jesus knows exactly what he's doing in the Sermon on the Mount. He knows he's preaching to people who are curious, but he also knows he's preaching to people who've gotten way too comfortable with God's laws. And they have these narrow interpretations, like the Pharisees who say, as long as I don't violently murder an innocent person, it gives me free reign to go after everybody else, to destroy their reputations, to engage in character assassination, to demonize, to exhibit control in ways that are not godly, that are not faithful. No, Jesus says, you're breaking the same commandment. I say to you, even if you get angry, I'm going to take a quick survey. I think this will be comfortable to raise your hand wherever you are. How many of you have been angry with another human being at some point in the last decade? Just go ahead and raise your hand. Okay, I just want to make sure it's relevant for, 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 you know, God's word always is. So we have an issue here. Because Jesus says to me, and he says to you, when that happens, I'm telling you you're guilty of murder. There's no way around that. It's exactly what he says. You might be sitting there waiting for me to interpret that away for you. Do a little, you know, dance. Like, oh, it doesn't mean this. It means, it means this. It means exactly what it says. Wait until you hear next week on sex what you can do, how low the bar is on how you can commit adultery. Jesus is using this rhetorical move to say, I came to fulfill that. I didn't come to erase the commands of Moses. I came to fulfill them and raise the bar. I came to get you back to the spirit of them, to, 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 the, to the truth of them. I, I came to get you back to what they really mean. And it's more than just taking the life of an innocent human being. Murder goes to those places where we hurt people, where we harm people, where we don't help people, where we don't support people. So we walk along this bridge and there are some places where we can fall and it's pretty dangerous. If you fall off this bridge, you're going to be in serious trouble. The one side is we fall off the edge spiritually or, or, or biblically or, or not biblically when we say, oh, I've got a pretty comfortable view on this one. I'm sure I haven't broken this commandment. Truth is we've all broken this commandment. Anytime we get angry, Jesus says, he goes on to say, if in the same Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, if you call your brother a fool, you are guilty and will be dragged into the courts, my courts, God's courts. And if you curse another human being, you are in danger of the fires of hell. Jesus is not mincing words. It's more than just don't murder. Jesus is saying, get your anger in check. Stop demonizing other people. Stop dismissing other people. Stop cursing other people forever and ever. Stop saying, I'll never forgive that person. As I said last week, it doesn't mean you're saying, I'm going to go back and rebuild a relationship of trust where I allow somebody to hurt me, crush me, abuse me, harm me. You don't have to do that. You don't have to like what was done. You don't have to condone the sin. You don't. Christians are not in the sin-blessing business. It's really about how long are you going to keep carrying that burden and that weight of unforgiveness that's crushing you? Which is why Jesus raises the bar. Because he sees it. He sees people saying, well, I'm following the letter of the law. And Jesus will say, yeah, well, what about the spirit of the law? What about what's underneath it? What about the motives behind it? Are you helping and supporting people when you have opportunities? Are you saying, well, as long as I don't take their life physically, I guess I'm okay. Are you hurting or harming other people? Yeah, but I didn't kill them. And Jesus would say, well, yeah, but you kind of did. So these four things, the Bible says. Again, it's not preacher's opinion. If you have issues with this, it's really issues with God's word. 
Number one is get rid of all bitterness, rage, anger, harsh words, and slander, as well as all types of evil behavior. Easier said than done. I want to ask you, are you more of a shaker or a soaker? How many of you have been offended by somebody in the last 10 years? Raise your hand. How many have been offended? Don't raise your hand anymore. Just answer this in your heart. How many of you have been offended in the last day by somebody? Get rid of it. Shake it off. You say, that's a weak move. If I, if I just let it go every time somebody offends me, I'm going to become, you know, something to walk over. I'm going to be a pushover. That's, that's weakness. There's no, what about strength? What about courage? What about Luther? He fought the good fight. Right? Stand up for that. Stand up for righteousness. Stand up for justice. Stand up. Stand up with passion. Fight your fights. Even your, your fights over political social issues. Fight your fights. Fight the good fight. Do it. Don't, you don't have to become, you know, mute your voice and it disappears. Stand up for the righteousness of God. Just make sure that your views are in alignment with Scripture instead of what Aunt Betty says Scripture says or Uncle Pete. Make sure that it's coming from God instead of the priests of Luther's day who tell you this is what it says. I would add this. Is a leader really worth following if that leader needs to manufacture an enemy in order to be a leader? Because that happens all around us all the time. It happens politically, for sure. But it also happens in the church. It also happens when there's envy and jealousy with, between churches and pastors and denominations and different, different expressions of Christianity. Stop it, God says. Get rid of that. That's not good for the body of Christ. You've picked fights with the wrong enemies. You're going after the wrong people. Oh, they don't do it like we do. They don't have the history we do. They don't have the theology we do. They don't have the doctrine we do. They don't have the buildings we do. They don't have the band we do. They don't have the programs we do. They don't have the whatever we do. Stop competing. We're on the same team. Stop the friendly fire. Stop, stop, st let's stop picking on enemies who aren't our enemies. Let's stop dismissing people. You know who the enemy of Christianity is? The devil. Darkness and evil. Injustice. Immorality. People who push people away from Jesus. People who tempt people to say there are other things more important in your life than him and your relationship with him. That's the enemy. The enemy of Christianity is not the church across the street or down the street or on the other side of the town. We're for them. We're on the same team. We want to work alongside of them to help make heaven more crowded. The enemy's sleeping in on Sunday. The enemy is... I did a whole six seasons on Netflix of this show on Saturday and Friday night, and now I'm too tired to come to church. That's the enemy. Fight the fight against the real enemies. Get rid of all bitterness, rage, and, and even so, we don't, we don't blame Netflix for that. It's not their fault we have binge issues, although they do kind of promote it and encourage it, but never mind that. Have some self-control, the Bible says. Get rid of your anger. How do you do that? How do you shake off the offense that's been done to you? Be a shaker, not a soaker. Oh, I'm so mad. Who are you mad at today? Or who are you mad at this hour for some people? Some people, have you noticed, aren't happy unless they're offended? Unless they have some enemy to talk about all day long? How's that working out for you if that sounds a little bit like where you go every once in a while? 
How much joy is in your heart? How much peace? How much freedom do you have? When it's always, oh, those people, you know them, whoever them is. And what are we, a week and a half away from elections? And I encourage you, Christian, go to the polling booths. Let your voice be heard. Uh, uh, try to vote in ways that are aligned with Scripture. Absolutely, yeah, I say this every election cycle. But understand the hope of the world is Jesus Christ. Understand that ultimately it's got to be him. Or our hope is misplaced. Shake it off. If somebody offends me, I try to look closer and say, what's the motive for that offense? Are they they really maliciously trying to destroy me? 99 times out of 100, no. 99 times out of 100, if I offend somebody, I don't have time for malice. It's just ignorance. If I've ever offended you, it's ignorance. It's I just didn't know. I'm not trying. I'm not against anyone. Who's got time for that? It's exhausting. And when I remember the people who offend me are probably in the same category, 99 times out of 100, it helps me shake it off. If that isn't enough, I just go back to the cross as I talked about last week and I remember God's grace for me and then it pours out of me to others. It doesn't mean... I have to go back into a relationship full throttle and say I'm all in. It just means I'm going to let it go. I'm going to let the burden go. I'm not going to hold on to it more. I'm going to get rid of it. Because bitterness is not attractive. And it's not helpful to, to the bitter person. Not just the one the bitter person is against. There's a story early on in the Bible that depicts this, illustrates this. It's the first murder in the Bible. Cain murders Abel, but I want you to, what I want you to think about is why because of his unchecked anger because he didn't shake it off Jesus will say later if you can't shake it off then go if if you're soaking in it if it's really bothering you then go to the person who offended you and you work it out between the two of you one on one what Jesus is saying you can't do is go tell all your friends go tell everybody oh do you know so that almost everybody around you knows how offended you are by that person except that person Now the sin is yours as much as the other person's, according to Jesus. Because most of the time when you take it one-on-one to that person, you're going to be able to work it out, and you're going to restore a relationship. God sees that coming with Cain. He knows he's envious. Envy can be a real motive for anger that we can't let go. I want what you have. We'll get to that commandment later. But it produces anger in this case. God sees it, and before Cain murders his brother Abel, God says, why are you so angry, Cain? Sin is crouching at the door. Now that's an image to remember. It's not the tiger ready to pounce on Abel who's going to get murdered. It's the tiger getting ready to pounce on the murderer, Cain. Sin is crouching at your door if you walk with that anger and that unforgiveness the rest of your life. You must subdue it and be its master. Number two, bless the EGRs. In this church we call EGRs extra grace required to love them. Almost all of us have people like this in our lives. It takes extra grace, but that of course reminds us God has extra grace for us, which is what scripture tells us. It's a funny thing about sin and grace. If we're feeling shame, if you're here today feeling like you can't be forgiven for something you've done, the wonderful surprise will be that God's grace is bigger than you think for your sin. The challenging surprise might be the amazing grace of God might be bigger than you want it to be for your enemy's sin. Because it's there for your enemy too. 
And when we start seeing it the way God sees it, grace for the person who offended me, sin, it starts to set us free. So don't repay evil for evil with your EGRs. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. And the blessing can't be God hit you with a lightning bolt. (laughs) You know what's going to happen to you if you start praying for the people that you have the hardest time loving? It might not change them. It might not change the relationship. You, You don't get to control that. It'll change your heart. It'll move you closer to freedom and to peace and to real and lasting joy. There's another story at the end of the book of Genesis about another set of brothers, Joseph and his brothers. Long story short, Jacob gives Joseph, one of the 12 sons he has, an amazing technicolor dream coat, which Donnie Osmond apparently wore pretty well on Broadway. His brothers were absolutely offended by it, and they said, this isn't fair. Dad never gave us amazing Technicolor dream coats. You're the favored one. So their anger was unchecked, and they decided to throw him into a deep cistern and leave him there for dead. Fast forward, Joseph is rescued and survives. He becomes a very prominent leader in in the largest nation of the world in his time in Egypt. He's in Pharaoh's court. He has authority. His brothers come limping back to him and have to beg him for food in the middle of a drought. You make the call. You're Joseph. What do you do? You have the authority. Send these people away. They tried to murder me. Or what Joseph did, he shook it off. He said to his brothers, you intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. Notice Joseph is not saying it's all good what you did to me. But he said, my God is bigger than your sin. And my God rescued me. And I'm not going to hold the grudge. I'm not going to bless your sin. I'm not going to say what you did is okay. But I'm going to move on. I'm going to wear my colors with all their worth. Number three, graduate from gossip. A troublemaker plants seeds of strife, but gossip separates the best of friends, Proverbs 16 says. We see this in political cycles. Who's ready for attack ads to end? (laughs) That's the biggest amen I've gotten in weeks. I could hear it. It was a little rumble. I know. I understand. It gets bitter. And then when, when you get attacked, what are you supposed to do? When your side gets attacked, boy, have we lost our way. Proverbs 17 says, wrongdoers eagerly listen to gossip. They love this stuff. They make careers out of this stuff. They seek power using this stuff. I don't need you to love me. I just need you to hate my opponent. And the way I'm going to do that is I'm going to exaggerate things to make you scared to death of what's going to happen in the future if this person rises to power. I'm not saying we shouldn't debate all of those things passionately. God, more importantly, God's not saying that. But when we obsess with it, when we make it the thing we think about night and day, how's that going for you? So choose life. Words kill or words give life. If you haven't heard anything else I've said today, just hear that. Your words can kill or they can give life. And not just your words and what they do to other people. It's whether they're going to kill or give life to you. What comes out of your mouth comes from the heart, the Bible says. And if your heart is allowing all sorts of malicious, 
hate-filled, slanderous, gossipy, exaggerated, uh, distant from the truth, rumors, uh, a bunch of things about people you're afraid of. Stop. For your own sake, stop. For the sake of your soul, your heart, your mind, and the quality of the rest of your earthly life, stop. So says this commandment of God. Your words can kill or your words can give life. They're either poison or fruit. You choose. Choose wisely. So I just have one more question for you. Whoops, it's not there, it's there. Where do you stand? Maybe the better question related to it, who do you stand with? Who gets your allegiance, your highest allegiance? Who's worthy of it? Who do you follow? Who, who, who's earned that? I hope above all else, his name is Jesus. When Luther took that stand, courageously, let the world do what it wants to me, he found new life. He said, I'm born again. I've got a whole new life. Freedom, peace, joy. It's here for you. If you follow the commands, the Bible says it'll bless you. If you make up your own, it's going to be a burden. Choose wisely.